Hey, one more thing before you go. In this episode, we're going to talk to a woman that was the only child of an alcoholic single mother. She joined Alateen at seven years old, and after decades of therapy, self-help books, religious experimentations, and struggles, she found herself back in the 12-step program. She's on a journey of discovery, and we're going to learn how she transformed her life after years of struggling to find herself. I'm your host, Michael Hurst, and this is The Thing About Unboxing God. My guest today is McCall Bennett Lawrence, and welcome to the show. So you've had an amazing journey to get where you're at right now. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Certainly. My name is McCall. I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio with a single mother and no siblings. I grew up in an area called Cleveland Heights, and at the time, it was mostly Jewish and Black. Uh, There was only one other white family that I knew, and I always felt a little bit like the other and enjoyed that, like owned it and claimed it and maybe even exaggerated it a bit. Another aspect of my childhood is that my single mother is a alcoholic and When I was in about seventh grade, I came home from school and she was in the hospital detoxing and doing rehab. So I started a program called Alateen, which is for the children of alcoholics. It's a support group, a 12-step program, much like Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, uses the same steps with only one word changed. And it was my support system and my stability through my early teen years. And then I dabbled after college and came back in full force about three years ago after my mother's 90-something detox and hospitalization due to her drinking and pill use. Now, don't get twisted. My mom is an amazing human being. She is a poet and just gorgeous and creative and articulate But she has a disease, just like cancer. It wasn't something that she really even could control. And I didn't understand that for most of my life. I took it very personally, like she chose alcohol over me, over being a mother. And so my worldview became real toxic and real defensive. And I have clung to blame and or shame my whole life. If I wasn't happy, I either blamed other people or myself or my situation. And it felt like there was a cloud over my head, no matter where I was or what I was doing. Didn't matter what school I went to, didn't matter who I dated, didn't matter what career path I chose, what state I lived in. This epic black cloud just seemed pervasive over my whole life. And Three years ago, I made a decision to back away from the cloud and seek the silver linings. Well, that's amazing. I mean, I can empathize with you. Both my parents were alcoholics, so I understand where you came from, and I understand the process that you had gone through. I also understand the cloud that follows you until you understand where there might be a light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. And um, I come come from the same type of environment, so I definitely can relate to that. As you grew up, did you, uh, did you go to college? I certainly did. Uh, I poured myself into performance and academics, uh, into acting and theater, into pop culture, media, music and films and plays. 
And my degree, my undergrad degree is in acting, BFA. And I went to grad school. After a few years, I had to pick a major, basically, um, for my degree. And I got a Master of Specialized Studies in Sex and Gender. Interesting. Help us understand what that is. Well, the degree itself is, uh, it's kind of, my degree sits at an intersection of psychology, anthropology, sociology, philosophy, theology, linguistics, and science, really. Uh, I studied all Kind of an interdisciplinary approach from within. Very much an interdisciplinary approach. And what actually happened is I took classes for a couple of years and decided, well, it was decided for me that I better figure out what I'm doing and what these credits are going towards. And a counselor suggested a specialized study degree so that all of my credits could count. And we looked at the classes I had taken and it was like abnormal psychology, linguistics of gender, sexuality in the human brain. And the through line for the majority of my classes had something to do with sex, gender, sexuality, um, male-female relations and, and, and conversation, how we speak differently, how we identify, uh, and how we move through the world. <laughs> so really, my degree came about because I had taken a couple of years of study, and a school counselor helped me look at all the classes, all the credits I had taken, and where did, where was the intersection? What was the the through thread and it turned out to be sex gender sexuality uh and she suggested an interdisciplinary master's uh, a specialized studies master in in that. sex and gender roles that works i thought i would do academia realistically i was at the time it was the early 90s and i Kind of gender queer and and a lot of colleges only had women's studies certi- cert- women's studies certificates, and I thought that was sorely lacking. I completed the women's studies certification program at Ohio University, and every time we would study a topic like female disembodiment in advertising, you know, where our heads are cut off or whatever. Uh, I couldn't help but think about the toxic masculinity in our culture and the box that men are stuck in just from what men can wear compared to women. I completed a women's studies certification and I found it sorely lacking in scope and depth. I started seeing issues with toxic masculinity and that that felt like the root of a lot of the feminine issues just in that men are so boxed in and limited in their personal gender expression whereas you know i could wear combat boots and a leather jacket and have really short hair and granted i'd hear the occasional 
hey, are you a dyke? Right. But in general, completely accepted. Whereas if you walk around wearing makeup or a skirt, there's an inherent bias. Right. And so I felt that that the issue wasn't a problem with just the patriarchy towards women, but that the misogyny in our culture limits males even more. So I, I assumed I would pursue the route of academia and eventually go to a university and transform their women's studies program into a true gender studies program. Outstanding. Did you accomplish that? Well, not exactly. Part of my little uh, hero's journey cycle, if you will, was on my way to Papua New Guinea. I was headed to the Trobriand Islands to do my senior uh, thesis, my dissertation on the matriarchal society in the Trobriand Islands off the coast of Australia. And when I got to Los Angeles to get on a plane, I was informed that there was a six-week dengue malaria quarantine, and I needed to get a test and then stay here for six weeks before I flew. And during that time, I got a job on the X-Files doing photo double stand-in work, and I loved it so much. It was so fun, and I was hanging out with celebrities and eating lobster tail and filet mignon from craft services, having really heady, deep conversations, philosophical debates with some of the actors. And I made a lot of money for very little work. (laughs) Holly, the... The enticement of Hollywood glamour. <laughs> it was, it was, it was. And uh, so that was, I was 25 years old. I am 47 now and actually just finished my applications to go back and finish my master's degree and start on my doctorate. Well, congratulations for that. Thank you. Never too old to accomplish that, by the way. I went back to university when I was 51 years old. For what? I got my master's in interdisciplinary studies with a focus on digital media and performance. And I actually led my class because, well, they thought, hey, you're the old man of the troop, so lead us on. You must have wisdom if you have gray hair, right? Well, this, I keep trying to hide. That's why I'm on a podcast instead of in front of a camera. (laughs) (laughs) See, I part my hair so my four grays show, so I have some authority. Yeah, well, we'll call it. We'll call it distinct. Actually, I feel pretty lucky. For my seventh decade, my hair does not have that much gray in it, so I'm very happy about that. No, you look darn good. So it's kind of a, you know, it's just this chinny-chin hair dipped in milk, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Somewhere thereabouts. But no, that's that's kind of when I went back. I went back at 51 to kind of reinvent my life as well, and it it, uh, changed my life. From that perspective, and you know, I like you. I had always been, uh, you know, followed by a little cloud because of my past, and not my past personally, but my my parents. You know, they always had a, an effect upon what I did in my life. That's why I became a police officer when I first did, because I felt that I could make a contribution. And um, you know, I I know we're talking this is a conversation, so we you know sharing a little bit here. I when I first went back to college. I went back to be a journalist like my father was, and I thought that's what I wanted to do. And yeah, I enjoyed it, and I enjoy writing now. But then I kind of kind of evolved from that, went into um, took some criminal justice classes, and in in one of those, we um, had a certification to be an alcohol and drug abuse counselor. And I got that all the way through the internship, and I started going through the internship. And about that time, 
um, I kind of went, I don't want to keep reliving this with every client, so to speak. And, you know, the more I did two or three sessions with the internship and, you know, I stopped to think and look back on everything. It's like, you know, I finally got over some hurdles and I kind of don't want to, no disrespect to anybody going through that journey, but coming from the household that I had come from, it was a, um, a revelation that I don't want to relive this over and over again. And I was, I was 19 years old. So being 19, 20 years old, it was you know, I'm still young and I just got, I, I won't say just got out of that environment. My father died when I was 17 and he died of uh, his esophageal cancer and cirrhosis of the liver. It's how bad of an alcoholic he was, um, that it tore up his uh, esophagus and as well as the cirrhosis. So it was one of those things fresh out of that. I'm going, ah, I'm not going to do this. So I continue my pursuit in law enforcement in the most of the people who were instructing were like old New York cops and New York detectives, and you know they're telling all these these New York horror, you know, horror stories. And, yes. and the LA cop, we had some LA retired, and you know they're talking. You're going, wow, this sounds kind of like right up my alley. I can I can do this. So that's kind of, has kind of. I've been I, around chaos my whole life. <laughs> there we go. I, I this is me. I need to do this. <laughs> you know what I think so interesting though, Michael is. Um, there's another 12-step program similar to Alatina and Al-Anon called Adult Children of Alcoholics or Dysfunctional Families, ACA or ACOA, if you're on the East Coast. And they have a, what they call the laundry list. It's 14 mm. traits of an adult child. Uh, and the number one trait on the laundry list of 14 is that we became isolated and afraid of people and authority figures. That's interesting. And the fact that you chose a career and pursued criminal justice and became a policeman is kind of the flip side of the coin to my personal reaction to that laundry list item. That it sounds like we both were affected by or influenced by a lack of stability. And you went in one direction where you created and emphasized structure in your life and in your community. And I kind of found the opposite side where I became this rebel without a cause or a clue and kind of just went through my life as big, experiencing things fully and often somewhat dangerous or maybe illegal things that I could find, whether it was relationships with different types of people or different genders or hobbies that were daring skydiving. I was the president of my skydiving club in college <laughs> that I pursued the reckless and the chaos, because that is where I found stability and comfort. Yeah, I was used to it. And that you kind of went the opposite direction is very intriguing to me. Well, I think my, part of that might be the fact that I'm a middle child. So my being a middle child, they're always the nurturer. They take care of somebody or I had to take care of my brother when because my sister had already been moved out of the house and I had to become the man of the house, so to speak. So and I also took care of my parents you know, during those times that you and I both know, you know, they couldn't get out of bed to go to work. So we had to make phone calls and say, hi, my dad can't come to work because my dad is sick and, you know, this kind of a thing. And it sounds so, like you took some sense of identity from that where I rebelled against it to the point of um, 
really floundering uh, that anything that felt like it was supposed to be stable, I had such an inherent bias and bias and judgment about that I would push it away dramatically. Like I wouldn't even give it a chance. But but you you worked your way out of that, obviously. I mean, well, I started to notice as an adult that it wasn't benefiting my relationships. uh, That really swimming in the toxic chaos that was known and comfortable to me attracted other chaos and toxicity instead of, you know, taking steps towards something a little more emotionally and spiritually mature that I didn't believe I could ever be a mature, well-adjusted human. I always said, I always said as a child that I didn't have a magnetic north to my compass, that I didn't know what was right, Um, that I judged so harshly myself, my insides compared to other people's outsides, that I got further and further inside of my armored box that was supposedly protecting me and did and did protect me through a lot of my life. But as an adult, that armor impeded relationships. It didn't benefit me. Did you take any kind of a route towards um, alcoholism or drug use in regard to that? Did you kind of follow in the path of your parents? Well, again, I think it comes down to my comfort in the chaos and the inconsistent that I'm not even good at brushing my teeth every day, no less drinking. And plus, I don't really enjoy the taste of alcohol. But I think my my addictions were about people. It was really about, I felt like the victim all the time. I wore that martyr role real well. That mask of victimhood fit me comfortably and I got attention from it so well, whether I was sick or abandoned by my mother or... So, no, the answer to your question is no. I, I My drug of choice was humans. Humans. Yeah, and yeah. at least alcohol is consistent. It's going to affect you the same each time. You're going to know where right. you can get it. And human beings are not... Thus, <laughs> <laughs> that's fact. <laughs> you don't find too much consistency in humanity. Uh, so you. that led me to a spiritual pursuit uh, when I came back into program. So about three years ago in April, my mother fell when she was drunk one night and hit her head. Uh, the police came and she tried to shoo them off. But there was a woman who was staying with her temporarily, who insisted they take her. And she coded on the way to the hospital, had had a brain bleed, had a craniotomy when she got there, was on life support and intubated. And they didn't think she would make it. Uh, It was a significant uh, hemorrhage in her brain. And the pressure, they thought she'd be vegetable if and when she came out of it. So they called the whole family to her bedside, took a red eye, to Cleveland from Los Angeles with my daughter to say goodbye. And when they pulled the tube, she made it. In fact, it was less than eight weeks later, she was back in the hospital because of alcohol. Uh, So 
that moment, and maybe even before then, there was a seed planted that I needed something that her experience of life was so dramatically affecting me and how I got through my days, which being a mom and with two young children, it affected them significantly. Uh, And I just, I started to see the cycle. I started to realize that if anyone shakes their family tree, the addicts fall out. And that even if your parent or grandparent wasn't an alcoholic or an addict of any kind, if there was an addict somewhere in my in that family tree, the characteristics, the qualities, the the symptoms of addiction, it's a family disease. It's not just the person with the disease who is affected by it and learns the communication patterns and the the, the self-analysis. So I believe that that those qualities, those symptoms of the family disease of addiction congeal in children and that we then attract a toxic mate and have children and raise those children with toxic behaviors and then they attract the same and that so I started to see the cycle of addiction in my life and decided if there was any way to stop it that it was not just my right but my responsibility to pursue that to the ends and what's really interesting, I think, and a good point that you had brought up was the fact that addiction is not just alcohol or drugs. Addiction can be anything from relationships to sugar to food to Money, family. Absolutely. Exactly. Addiction is um, uh, even the way you eat and how you eat. Um, bulimia, anorexia, any of these particular cases, that's an addiction to something. And it, it stems deep within without, obviously, I'm not a psychologist, but it is... Um, it's well-versed within kids, raised within that environment that they carry on. And obviously from personal experience, uh, I'm speaking from personal experience, that, um, you know, it's, I think that you found um, an opportunity to shut the door on one and open the door on something new and, and kind of close that door so that nothing can follow you through. So do you, I know you said you were looking for spirituality, so do you... Are you spiritual or are you religious? That's a very good question. And I'm not a huge fan of labels. Uh, I think that human language boxes things in as well. What I can tell you is all 12-step programs have the basic same 12 steps. The first one is that we are powerless over blank and that our life has become unmanageable. And that, when you walk into a 12-step program, into the room of a 12-step meeting, you're kind of there. That if your life was manageable, you wouldn't need to be there. Can can I stop you for one second? So to help our listeners understand, we keep talking about a a 12-step program. Can you help them understand what exactly is a 12-step program? Uh, The first 12-step program was Alcoholics Anonymous. And it was started, it was co-founded by Dr. Bob and Bill W., Bill Wilson, who were both alcoholics trying to stay sober. And both had what they refer to as a spiritual awakening that saved their life. Any kind of spiritual experience or mystical experience 
one of the core qualities is a loss of self that you transcend your ego. Uh, and it can be done with meditation. It can be done with psychedelics. It can be done with reading and contemplation. But the ineffability, the an experience that cannot be expressed, as well as a loss of self, are two of the four qualities of that kind of transcendent mystical experience. Bill W. was a diehard, diehard alcoholic. He was a New York stockbroker and in the 30s went off the rails, uh, really just didn't leave his house, was drunk constantly. And an old friend of his named Ebby Thatcher came to his house one day and Bill offered him a drink and Ebby said, Thanks, but no thanks. I got religion. And Ebby was the one person Bill W. knew who was worse off than Bill W. And he didn't even look like himself when he came. And he told Bill W. about this experience he had had with the Oxford group, which is a Christian group that has basically steps to connect with something greater than themselves. And the, the last part of it is kind of an evangelical, it's a give it away to get it or to keep it sort of situation. And once Bill had that experience of becoming sober, and he had also read William James's book, Varieties of Religious Experience, he and Dr. Bob, this doctor in Akron, Ohio, actually, went out and started this little save a drunk to stay sober program where they would go to bars and find somebody who was gone, obliterated, and they would put all their energy and effort into helping this other person. And in doing so, they stayed out of the bar and they kept alcohol out of their bodies. So the basis of the 12 steps is a religious idea. But Bill took it and said, step two, so step one in all 12-step programs is we admitted, we admitted we were powerless and that our life had become unmanageable. And then step two is came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And then step three is we gave our life and our will over to the care of God as we understood him. And those steps were tremendous stumbling blocks for me personally because of my rebelliousness and my bias against structure and authority. God was the ultimate disappointment. <laughs> like my concept of Christianity and Jesus on a cross dying while his believers are abandoned for all intents and purposes. And Judaism, I was raised in Hebrew school. I told you I grew up in a black and Hebrew neighborhood, black and Jewish neighborhood. And I went to a, a synagogue for school growing up. So I had this Judaic law upbringing. And then when my mom went into the hospital for eighth grade, I went to Catholic boarding school. You like them <laughs> on both sides. <laughs> right. And when, if and when my mom was sober for any period of time during that 
those formative years, we went to Unitarian Church. So my religious exposure was vast. Also, the family next door to me, this black family, a Jamaican family, was seven-day Adventist. And when my mom was off the rails, that's who I would stay with. I would walk over there. You know, if my mom was passed out and I needed dinner, I would go to the Petros's house. So I was also exposed to this family bonding in a, a family of color that I didn't see in my own family. So I longed. I longed for faith. But it never sat right with me. Um, The idea of God as a humanized entity with a name and a gender and a face, just that is not a power greater than myself that can restore me to sanity. So I put it in a box and I put it on the shelf because I couldn't I couldn't deconstruct it. I was too distracted by life to realize that there was an amount of exploration required on my part to figure out who the God of my understanding is. Mm-hmm. And it went through lots of iterations, went through lots of um, stages. And I had God 1.0 and God 2.0. And where I'm at now is still on this journey, but I have an abiding faith in something larger than myself. I actually call God by a pet name. I call God Waldo, as in where's Waldo? (laughs) Because the chaos is prevalent in my experience of life. And what isn't is the consistency and the stability of a power greater than myself. But I've come to the understanding that like a Where's Waldo book, the more chaotic the picture, the more sure I can be that there is something there, that those kind of red and white stripes, I call them, are throughout the experience. But I am so caught up in fear of what's next, of the unknown, of the future, and obsession over the past and wanting to change things, that I really wasn't in the moment to be able to seek out that power greater than myself. And considering a higher power as Waldo puts the onus on me to have the relationship, that that power, that that power greater than myself is there, but I have to seek it. I think that that's, everybody's always seeking something. Well, I had a God-shaped hole. And I was filling it with anything I could get my hands on. Yeah, I my perspective is I did the same, something similar in regard to I'm spiritual and I believe in Mother Nature. I believe in the universe. I believe in a collective of the universe. I do believe in God. I believe there's a higher power. But I do not, and I'm probably going to get a lot of flack for this, I do not believe in organized religion because in my studies, in the stuff that I've done from an academic perspective, as well as experimenting with, I went to Nazarene church, I went to a Baptist church, I went to every church that you can get your hands on, except for a Mormon church, because they wouldn't let me in, to try to experience from their perspective what exactly they had to say. And ironically enough, even though the Bible is supposed to be um, in totality, 
the Bible was written by man 50 years after Jesus even died, and it was from stories that they brought forward with themselves, and they were old men. Nothing against old men, because I am becoming one, you know what I mean? But, but you have to consider context. You have to consider context. Set and, and setting. Exactly, and you have kings that said, well, I don't want this book in, I don't want that book in, and you take this book out. Then you have a pope that says, we don't want this one in, we want this one in, and we don't want that one. And then you, you get the the Jewish side who say, well, this part doesn't even exist, and this part over... There are so many different variations, and the majority of what I have found with organized religion is the first thing that they try to do is to get you to believe that their religion is the only religion and that the only one you should believe is this. So, you know, my my wife and I and, and our kids are kind of raised this way as well. We're kind of, a, from a spiritual perspective, we understand that there's a the universe is out there. We understand that as a universe, we can ask the universe, I believe in angels, and whether they be angelic from another realm or whether or not they be an individual that walks down the street and says, you look like you need a hug. You know what I mean? Or you look like you're hungry. Can I buy you some dinner or lunch? From those perspectives, I think that even from my perspective, the, the parts of the journey that you and I have shared together from our past and from parental perspectives, I think we all search for something like that. We all search to fill that little hole, to fill that void, because, you know, you feel as a child, and here we're getting into philosophy and into psychology, as a child, again, from personal perspective, you start to feel abandoned. You start to feel, why am I in this position? Why did I get the short end of the stick? I used to work at a restaurant with a bunch of other guys, and one of the people there, he had a job because his parents felt that, well, you need a job so you can learn. And then he would work for a month, and then they'd go uh, three weeks to Maui, Hawaii. And, you know, and then they come back and he'd work for two or three more weeks, and then they'd go someplace else. And I'm going, well, I'm working because I need to help my mother pay the rent or put food on the table. And why me? Why is this happening? Kind of a thing. So, yeah, I I, I see what you were looking for. I see well, I think who feeling. am I and why am I are two of the most fundamental questions of human existence. But they were two questions that scared the crap out of me that there may not be an answer for me. Like, I am so terminally unique that what works for other people might not work for me. And as creative and intelligent as I am, it never really occurred to me when I read, when I heard the sentence, the God of your understanding, that I could truly make a Mr. Potato Head God, deity, that has the lips of Jesus and the ears of Buddha and the eyes of Krishna, that it's not... It doesn't need to be so regimented and that really a power, a creative power, whether it's science or God, anything that created me has to be so much more complex than me that I couldn't possibly understand it. And that as soon as I could, it stops being God. It stops being a power greater than myself. Now, when you hit that realization, had you done that because of the last incident with your mother, or did you come about that in a different way? Well, I think I had explored so many other people's boxes of God and like stepped into them part and parcel 
And they only worked temporarily. It wasn't a sustainable faith. I mean, it was beautiful and magical in the moment. You know, I had rose-colored glasses and saw the connections and the kind of the, the mythology, the archetype that, that is universal and throughout time. There were always links that were missing for me or the organized religion and, and the hierarchy in, in that kind of community didn't sit with me that I saw such hypocrisy and self-centeredness and power plays and that it seemed all to be for what happens after you die, that salvation was about heaven or hell. And for me, I was already in hell, whether it was of my making or alcoholism or whatever. Argue, arguments could be made for both. I think they're equally true. I, I think I lacked the courage to do the exploration necessary because I didn't feel worthy, maybe. Did you try At, therapy? Did I try therapy? Oh, yes, absolutely. But therapy was hit or miss for me. It was either just picking at old wounds and reliving old stories and not getting the lesson, I guess, from them to resolve them. Or it was just self-confidence boosting uh, so that I could get through my day and not be plagued with kind of suicidal ideation even. Like, maybe I'm not meant for this world sort of thinking that it still wasn't taking ownership of my part. In, in Al-Anon, in 12-step programs, there's a lot of emphasis. So the fourth step is a rigorous and honest moral inventory where we go through our resentments and find our part in it. Because if you've ever tried to change yourself, you'll know how hard it is to think that you could change someone else, which is where all my effort went. My whole life, I was determined to change even institutions. Like I wanted to affect change in others so that I could be happier and more content. And what I learned from the steps is that if I take 100% responsibility for my 2% in the play of my life, that actually I can affect big changes in how I experience my life. Right. And that surrender to my powerlessness was actually what gave me the freedom to explore where I do have some power and control, which is over my own life. And my right. own behavior. So once I had that surrender, kind of like a transcendent, uh, transcendent experience, I myself and my ego kind of sloughed off like a layer of skin. And I was raw and scared and lonely, but I didn't shrink back from it. And that's what I've done my whole life. It's like I open a door and I'm in this hallway and there's other doors, but instead of going through one of them, I stay where I'm comfort comfortable and miserable and shirk back away from the doors instead of pushing through the discomfort that fear and shame and all these things that are now the opposite of, quote, God for me were my higher power for many decades. And now I am at a point of uninhibited exploration on a spiritual sense without looking for an end or answers even, that it's much more about the journey. That I'm at a point in my life now 
where I am on a road of spiritual exploration and enjoying thoroughly the journey without looking for answers or an end that Ursuline Le Guin has a quote that says, it's nice to have an end to journey towards, but it's the journey that matters in the end. And accepting that has opened this door to a sense of wonder. Instead of emphasizing my doubts that I swim in this place of wild wonder. Uh, so for me, God, for lack of a better word, Waldo, shows itself, that source energy, power greater than myself, shows itself through synchronicity, through coincidence. And in order to experience those qualities of my life, I need to be present now in the moment. I can't, as my grandfather would say, stand with one leg in yesterday and one leg in tomorrow and you're peeing on today. And I've peed on a lot of today's. The future and the past is all an illusion that I was living in, that I was so filled with anxiety about what's to come and resentment for what's already happened that today I was missing all the wonder and excitement and beauty and love and kindness that are in the world. So is this part of your reintroduction into the 12-step program? I don't know that I could dissect which one started which. It's kind of a chicken or the egg. I believe that my just partially age, I think, I think age is a huge gift that things start to not become so big and dramatic once you start having some perspective and you can look back on things. You know, when I was 25 and I would break up with somebody, it felt like the end of the world. And then when you're 30, you've had the experience so many times that you don't have to make it bigger than it is. And I think a combination of that, my mother's disease's persistence, they say that alcoholism and addiction is a baffling, powerful and cunning disease. And I thought I could out baffle and out cun it. And the acceptance of my powerlessness was the key to making progress. That makes a lot of sense, actually. Makes a lot of sense. That's kind of where unboxing God came from. You took that box off the shelf. You kind of started opening the lid and you started exploring more, would you say? Well, there's also an esoteric kind of a double entendre that in my life, the few times I have taken that spiritual box off the proverbial shelf, I take God out and I box like a boxing match. Like I put on the gloves and I fight and I wrestle. So spirituality, religion, God, authority, structure created a fight or flight response in me. You think you're ever going to overcome that? Again, I think it's a journey. I don't think that it's a destination. I don't think that there's a moment that it's done. I think that my my spirituality is the exploration of it. My worship, my praise is the noticing of the fingerprints of Waldo, kind of like Fibonacci's golden ratio or, or Benford's law, like the immutable truths that withstand time, withstand culture and gender and language and expression. The exploration of that, eh, the wonder, I mean, it really comes down like Einstein, like one 
God is in the wonder, in the journey. It's not something I'm trying to get to. It's something I'm trying to be with. You have a family now, right? I do. I have a 14-year-old daughter who's a Hollywood 14. So basically, if she lived in Tacoma, she'd be an (laughs) 18-year-old. And then I have a 12-year-old boy who is a Hollywood 12. And just like if he lived in Tacoma, he's playing Minecraft and Fortnite. (laughs) So... And I'm married. I have an incredible husband named Kyle who grew up in a born-again preacher family. His Both of his brothers are in church and both of his parents are in ministry. And he is a staunch atheist at this point in his life. Um, yeah, he, he uses Sam Harris as his kind of higher power. That's He practices meditation and mindfulness, but it is still a spiritual pursuit. And I can see that with perspective. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, each person's on their own journey and their journey becomes their pursuit and their journey becomes their spiritual. That's kind of a, well, it's like, actually, it's kind of an Asian philosophy. If you look back in regard to that, that each individual has to open up their own spirituality, reach deep inside themselves to find themselves. And um, that's where the spiritual connection with the universe comes about. And I think that's where my issues with Christianity also come about, is the idea that there is one way, one truth feels neglectful. It feels petty and small to me. And just like I said earlier, it's, I went to all these different religious, all these different churches. You know, I've also studied the Asian, the Hindu philosophies and the Buddha, Buddhism and Zen, and I practice Buddhism and Zen to a certain perspective. I've kind of picked and choose some things that I kind of practice and put into my box. And um, I utilize those because we, my wife and I, every morning we go out back and we sit at, sit in nature and we meditate and we talk to nature and we thank our full and are grateful for what we've got back there. And we, we talk to the universe and, you know, this is how we do it in this, you know, we start our day that way and we end our day that way and it helps us to sleep better and we appreciate nature. We appreciate the trees in the backyard. We appreciate the flowers and, and how they became. So from a Native American perspective as well, we've taken all of those things and kind of encompassed them in into a, our own box. And that's why I say we're more spiritual than we are religious, because I think that, unfortunately, I think that... Um, Organized religion has become more of a money-making opportunity. does not have the right perspectives in regard to helping people. Now, I'm not saying that everybody's that way, but I am saying that there are people who, and some of these entities, who are that way. Yeah, I think it's more of a money-making scheme. In in regard to, to now, now again, I may catch a lot of flack for this, but it's kind of one of those things, again, it's from personal experience. I've been to a variety of churches in a variety of religions I've gone and tried to practice. So that's my personal experience. I'm not saying it professionally. I'm saying it personally. So it's kind of one of these things that you know, I think everybody's got, they've got to open their hearts and their minds to looking deep within, within themselves in order to find their own spiritual journey, whichever they, that may be, I guess. I totally agree. I totally agree. And I one of my issues with organized religion is the hierarchy, is the power structure inherent in organization. There's a hierarchy built into organization. I attended a church in Los Angeles 
when I started exploring Christianity and trying to see if there was a space there for me. Uh, I was about 30 years old, so about 17 years ago. Uh, one of the things I loved about the church is they said we are not an organized religion. We are a disorganized community of believers. And their, quote, church service was at a nightclub downtown that Prince used to own and reeked of pee and vomit and booze. And I felt very comfortable <laughs> listening to stories about JC in that atmosphere. Uh, it's a far cry from where the Vatican used to be the uh, the largest bank in the world. And uh, in fact, in the 13th century, 12th century, 13th, 14th century, to uh, a bar, a nightclub. <laughs> uh, that's kind of crazy. Tell me about your podcast. How'd you come about So with that? for the past handful of years, I've been doing sales and marketing with publishers specifically a children's book that I found on Kickstarter and fell in love with and called and insisted that they allow me to sell their book wholesale to bookstores and get them on the New York Times bestseller list, etc. And when COVID hit, sales plummeted and I no longer had a job. So with this renewed sense of vim and vigor and spiritual connection and courage in the face of fear, I, I have a rule of threes. Once is a fluke, twice is a coincidence, three times is a pattern, and I believe it to my core. So when a third person randomly said to me, you know, I'd love to listen to a podcast that you did. I was like, you know, that's the third time I've heard that in a couple of weeks. And I mentioned it to my husband, who I mention a lot of brainstorms to, as you can imagine. And usually he just kind of nods his head and indulges me. And this time he looked at me. We have a rule about shoulds. We don't should all over people. So when he turned to me and he said, I think you should do that and caught himself and he went, wait, I think that's a really good idea. I ran with it. And it, the there synchronicity and the coincidences that that tangented uh, off of that decision were just nothing short of miraculous. Uh, I got a weird notice on my phone from Facebook. Somebody had posted something that they work at a podcast network and they're not working right now. They're home. And if anybody is starting a show and would like some mentorship to reach out, and I was the first person who commented and we got into deep conversations and that person has kind of held my hand through this and has led to other mentors in this industry and coming at it with no preconceived idea of what I'm doing other than knowing that I am going to be vulnerable. And I made a vow to Waldo to chase the rabbit down any hole it traveled, no matter what. Uh, there is a quote that I use kind of as a mantra prayer by Richard Bach, who wrote Jonathan Livingston Siegel and Illusions. He also wrote a book called Running from Safety. And he says, every turn you fear is empty air dressed to look like jagged hell. When the time comes to fight, I will be with you and the weapon you need will be in your hand. And I took that like it was scripture, like that's holy text to me, because as an experiment, one day at a time, as we say in program, 
I set my intentions when I wake up in the morning. I think of myself as putting on kind of this invisible lab coat. And before I get out of bed, I make contact with a power greater than myself, some source energy, something, goodness, wonder, delight. And I set a hypothesis just for the day that if X variable, if I change this variable in my day, that I may experience life differently. And at the end of the day, I survey the data that I've collected. And and being a scientist and having that distance and perspective and detachment from the experiences of my day and the people, you know, a scientist can't mess with the experiment or they're changing the results. So I have to be a little hands-off, and that's hard for me because I am so manipulative, so controlling, so want to have my fingers in the pot, right? That that detachment of thinking of myself as a scientist allows me to gather data and at the end of the day, decide if my hypothesis, what did changing that variable, how did that affect my experience of the day? And tomorrow, do I want to put back in the X variable or am I going to try this new one? And that has created this cycle of growth and exploration for me without the fear of commitment, kind of. And I made a vow to Waldo that I would live authentically and that I recognize that I'm not terminally unique. If I think or feel something, chances are I am not alone. And for as alone as I felt through these thoughts and explorations and and judgments that I have built in my brain about spirituality, about God, etc., I knew that there were other people for whom those steps of the 12 were not steps but were stumbling blocks and figured if I put it out there, maybe other it would be healing or at least freeing for one other individual. Well, it's pretty successful from when you first started, because it hasn't been that long, has it? No, it hasn't. And I've never, and it's changed significantly. Like if you listen to the trailer now, if you listen to episodes one, two, and three, it is a different show than episodes six, seven, eight, which are which are completely a different show from the most recent three or four. As, as we all evolve. Even one more thing before you go is evolved. I mean, listen to the first one. Exactly. Come out to, the, to the last uh, 10 and the next 30. It, it always evolves. It always. But the, my inherent resistance to change, which feels real scary to me, the unknown. Like, I'm the devil you know kind of lady. Like, I don't care if it's a bad relationship, a bad job, a bad apartment, clothes that don't fit. I cling. I cling to people, things, places, experiences, even if they're not great, just because it's comfortable. And what I've learned is I don't grow in my comfort zone. It is actually the discomfort that I grow through. So stepping out on that limb and realizing that the turn that I'm fearing is nothing more than empty air dressed to look like jagged hell has just blown the hinges off the box for me. And so I told you I'm going to go back to school and I'm looking at a doctorate of theology or um, divinity at a theological school because I do see a red thread through all myths, all religions, and I want to follow that thread. It's kind of how I praise or worship, I guess, 
is seeing those fingerprints. And that's what the show has been for me. Just kind of a, a freedom, a wondrous exploration of other people's philosophies. You know, I, I tap into polymaths is what they're called. People who've studied religion, psychology, sociology, philosophy, mathematics, etc. And usually are writers. So Bertrand Russell and William James and even like Plato and Socrates, uh, Marcus Aurelius and Stoicism, mysticism, any road to what anyone considers divine. I at least want to take a couple steps down that path and see if there's truth in it for me. Yeah, it's kind of cathartic. Real cathartic. 100%. And I don't feel nearly as alone as I have my entire life. And it doesn't make any sense because I don't really have a, a strong religious belief. Like, I have zero dogma. I think it's kind of ironic that dog is God spelled backwards. Yeah. We think of father God and you think of dog ma. Like, it's the opposite of spiritual for me. It's those rules and the constraints and the regulations and the power and the structure and the hierarchy and the... And doing away with that and still being on a path of exploration that is spiritual indeed, super fulfilling, super fulfilling. Well, plus I think you're opening doors for other people and that's, that's got to be so satisfaction has to come out of that as well because you're obviously going to open up doors for other individuals and more kind of awareness of what might be available. Uh, I, I hope that. But what I see is the belonging that I am feeling, connecting with people who have varying convictions, experiences, knowledge, and meeting them in this vulnerable space of authenticity where we don't debate who God is, but rather what God could be and try to find, I always say, I'm looking for the overlap of the Venn diagrams. Like where those circles converge, because I think in the middle of all those convergences, there is a perennial truth. I agree with that. I was going to ask you if you have any words of wisdom, but I think you just said them. Do you have any words of wisdom? How can somebody find your podcast in, you, in your website? Well, the easiest way is to go to unboxgodpod.com. You can find us on Patreon, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, <clears throat> you name it. Hopefully we're there. We also have a Facebook group and an Instagram page and a YouTube site. So we're out there. I'll have all of those links or the links that I have access to in the show notes for everybody. I really appreciate our conversation today. I appreciate the fact you shared your journey with us. And um, I look forward to uh, listening to your podcast more. Thank you for giving us the platform to share. Anytime. Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website at beforeyougopodcast.com. That's beforeyougopodcast.com. Tell your story, share your expertise, contribute to the blog, and subscribe to the newsletter. You can find us as well as subscribe to the program and rate us on your favorite podcast listening platform. And one more thing before you go. Have a nice day, have a nice week, and thanks for listening. One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life podcast, is a creation of One More Thing Productions, established 2010, all rights reserved.